0: We come from different backgrounds and places and circumstances, and if you're able, uh, we'd ask that you move to the center of the room, and, and we do this as a reminder that God comes to us f- as we are, and so we walk in this room, and we have different sized bank accounts, different colors of skin, different jobs and professions and family situations, but we gather in these moments recognizing the grace of God that invites us together, and so we join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer today. Father, we come before you and ask that you would continue to be with us in these moments. As we sing these words about the grace of God, about your grace that comes to us and says that maybe what we deserve, but there's what you offer us and it's something better than that. In these moments, we want to pray for one another. We want to pray for the person beside us and behind us and in front of us. We want to pray today for Ron Valinga as he has started chemo treatment. Want to pray for Kathy Smith as she grieves the loss of her mother. For Revile as she's in therapy right now for a broken back. I also want to celebrate today Mike and Nancy Bonds' sixty-two years of marriage. I want to celebrate those who have decided to commit to this local church um, in a formal kind of way. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize that you call us to be your grace, your peace, your hope in the world in which we live. We pray. for what we did last Sunday for the, the snack bags we packed for kids' food basket, and that those kids who would receive those would sense that they are loved by someone and that um, even someone besides mom or dad or grandma or grandpa cares for them. May we not only be able to provide meals, but may we hopefully provide tangible relationships as well. Pray for the man that we worked on his apartment, that he should have moved in by now, and so we prayed that that would have gone well as well. Father, we pray that we'd be committed in such a way that we live life as a reflection of your love, that we'd recognize this idea of being created in the image of God. It's what it means to be fully human, to be the people of hope, people of life. May we live in such a way that the world looks radically different because of who we are. So we pray that you'd help us to be reflections of your love in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, wherever we may go. So, Father, help us to be your people—a people of faith, hope, and love. Maybe that you speak to us this morning. Maybe your words that we hear, not mine. I pray this all in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we started last week a series that we're going to continue today on this idea of mercy. What is it, and why does it matter? And And as we think about mercy, uh, I thought maybe giving uh, an actual definition might be helpful. Uh, By the way, if you are in fifth and sixth grade and you're here today, you can leave right now. Um, We love you, but we actually have some place for you to go. And so some of you have just left, and I'll eventually remember to announce that every week, but I didn't today. So, um, mercy is defined by Merriam-Webster's dictionary as this, compassion or forbearance, shown especially to an offender or to one Subject to one's power also, known as lenient or compassionate treatment. In other words, compassion shown to someone um, who you have a choice to show it. So I was thinking, what does it look like to show this kind of mercy to others? And so I was thinking, like in sports, they have the mercy rule. Maybe You've heard of that. If you're up by a lot, um, like sometimes they'll make the clock just keep going, or they'll even take time off the clock because it's embarrassing, and it kind of hurts I was thinking right now that Ohio State probably wished there was a mercy rule yesterday uh, as they played Iowa. Um, for some of you Michigan fans, you appreciate that. I'm not one, but I just still appreciate the irony of all that. Um, but, but what we find is mercy is one of these things that we wonder, what does it look like? And do I have to offer mercy? In fact, you'll notice in this definition of mercy that, that often you're to give compassion to someone you have power over. Like, so we, we often think in terms of like judge, like Courtroom kind of thing, and so we'll talk about mercy. So if you are, if this is the sentence you should have earned, sometimes a judge will have mercy on a an defendant and they'll give them a lesser sentence. But it's offered it to someone we don't have to offer it: compassion, forbearance, leniency, grace. So ways we defined mercy. So I was trying to think about what mercy could look like in our lives, and so I thought of a couple of stories in my life. I remember when I was in college, I was a 19 year old freshman, and I. I had refereed some intramural basketball stuff and like some AAU basketball tournament stuff. And so I was officiating basketball on the side because they, they paid me. And so I'm a broke college student. I didn't like it, but they gave you money. So you'll do about anything if they'll pay you, right? Um, so I was officiating basketball for intramurals and it was, it was awful. And um, so just imagine officiating 18 to 22-year-old guys with lots of testosterone in the gym and they don't even know the rules. It's really fun. So, so I was officiating this game and there was this... This assistant football coach, I don't remember his name, but, but he played in murals because if you were a faculty member, you could play in murals as well. And so I, I was officiating, and he always would like, yell at me, and he's like, You're terrible. And finally, one day I just said, You know what? I'm suddenly like to be a pastor, so I should be gracious to people, right? I should not be bitter and angry. And so I went up to him before a game, and I said, Hey, whatever his name is, I don't remember now. And I said, Hey, I apologize for the times maybe I've said things I shouldn't have said, and I, can we just be good? And he goes, No. So like, so remember I'm 19, so that this isn't going to go well. So, so I said, well, I tell you what, um, what? And he goes, no, because you, you stink at what you do and you don't quit, meaning you stink at officiating. I said, the football team at the time was 0-5. So I said, well, you stink at what you do and yet you still do it. Look at the football team's record. And um, you can imagine how well that went. Um I had to give him technical that game later on, so it didn't go really well for either one of us. That's not really a good example of mercy. That's a good example of your pride getting away of an apology, right? I mean, that's what that really was. But I was thinking about my first year as a youth pastor. I was 23, and we had these two, um, two kids on this trip. There were 45 of us who went skiing. Went to Madison, Wisconsin, and, and we're on the way there, and, and we stopped. It's kind of, it was about a three-and-a-half-hour drive. It's not too far, but, but far enough that you had to stop for dinner on the way. We left after school, and... And so we stop at this, this place where they had three options for dinner. There was a Subway, there was a Wendy's, and there was a Chinese buffet. And we said, since the buffet food's ready, if you want to go there, we don't care. You just have, you know, 25 minutes or whatever it was. So these two eighth grade boys, Lamont and Michael, asked if they could go to the gas station next door and get gum. I said, yeah, I don't care. That's fine. I mean, I can see you. That's fine. No big deal. So they go to get gum and they come back and I'm watching them as they come back because I'm, I'm new with this, right? I'm scared of losing a kid. I don't want that to happen. I mean, I don't want to call your mom and dad. Hey, by the way, you trusted me with your child. I don't know where they are. Um, so I'm watching them as they come back and I see that they're putting gum in their mouth and they're spraying Axe body cologne all over themselves. And, like, and, I, and I get part of, I'm just thinking middle school boys, they think that it covers BO, right? In the locker room. It doesn't. If you're a middle school boy, do not just spray cologne on it because it makes you smell worse, so these guys come out going, oh, they're going to stink. Well, when they came up, I smelled something else. They smelled like weed. Like I could smell it through the Axe cologne. It was strong. Like it's a very distinctive smell. So I was 23, not like 83. And so I looked at them and I said, guys, um, I know what you've been doing. Looked at me. Their eyes are all, oh, pupils are dilated, right? I mean, like <laughs> it's really obvious what you've been doing. And I looked at them. and I said, uh, smoking weed, huh? No, we weren't. Really? So that smell I'm smelling right now, that's not what that is. No. Huh. I didn't smell it earlier, right? When I was talking to you earlier, and I didn't smell it on you. In fact, I, um, like I saw you spraying on cologne as you walked over here and throwing in gum, like thinking it was going to mask it, right? I mean, that's what you're thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm not that dumb. I, I understand what you're doing. I said, I, I don't believe you. I know what you did. And they looked at me, and I said, okay, hang on. I grabbed John. John was a, a, one of our youth leaders, and he's a fireman. And, and so I thought, John's, John's been around lots of stuff. He'll, he'll, he'll smell this too. And I go, John, can you smell this? He goes, I can't smell anything. <laughs> like, John literally couldn't smell anything. It had no, he couldn't smell the cologne. He couldn't smell. It was just nothing. And so I said, you're not helpful. Um, so I said, i would tell you what. When we get to the hotel because we're not going to stop right here because we've got all these kids, and, and we need to go, and I'm not going to turn around right now. So we, we get to the hotel, and I say, okay, you guys come with me. John, and there's another kid in the room, I said, we're all going to your room. Uh, John happened to be the adult in their room, and so we got to their room, and I said, okay, dump out your stuff. Excuse me, I said, dump out your stuff. So we searched through the stuff, and there's nothing else there. And I said, well, see, I, I know you're really smart enough to you either swallow the rest, or you threw it away, or you used it all at the gas station. Either way, it's over, right? Still denial, right? They're not gonna, they're not gonna give in on this. I said, I tell you what, you and I both know you did it. What you've earned is me to call your parents and come pick you up. But that's not what we're going to do today. It's not what's going to happen. Because the truth is, if, since you're smoking weed, probably being at a youth event where you're going to someone talk about Jesus is probably a really good idea for you, so I'm not going to send you home. I'm going to tell you to have a great time. In fact, I'm going to tell you, um, I'm going to choose to trust you the rest of this weekend. You haven't earned trust. In fact, you've earned the opposite of trust, but I'm going to choose to trust you anyway. And so the rest of the weekend, I hope you'll be great. I hope you'll have a great time. I hope you recognize that I trusted you. And they looked at me, and they were shocked. See, because Lamonte and Michael, Lamonte was one of like 11 kids. I'm not kidding. Um, he was adopted. And so this family just kind of adopted kids all the time because they got paid to do it, right? You get know how that works. And I, and I knew that they would have just called the police. That's what they would have done. They wouldn't even mess with it. It's kind of annoying, actually. Just, that whole family irritated me. Hopefully they don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe they should listen to this podcast. But I, I just said, um, Martha, you don't need someone else to throw the book at you. You need to know what mercy looks like. And Michael um, didn't really have a church background. Parents were divorced. Kind of a rough home life. Been in and out of trouble. Um, Michael I ran into about five years later after that, and he was about twenty at the time. And he comes right over and he acts like I'm his best friend, and he's telling me about his life and what's going on. And I'm like, man, I barely remember your first name. I had to, like think of it for Ferrenbacher was his last name. I mean, I had to think of, it. I had to really work to come up with this kid's name. I'll, I'll never forget it probably the rest of my life now. But but Michael came up and and we talked, and he talked about faith. And he I mean, he's not really a Christian. He didn't claim to be, but but he remembered me, and he remembered that I changed his perception. He said, "This you changed my perception of what I thought about the church." See, here's the reality for us these are two kids that didn't need me to tell them what the rule was. They needed mercy. They already knew the rules. They knew they broke the rules. They knew what they deserved. But sometimes what we deserve isn't what we need. Right now, the truth is if it was some of you in this room and your kids, I'd have called you in a heartbeat and said, come pick up this kid. He's been smoking weed. That wasn't what they needed. Like it had been Joey a few years ago, I'd have called Jim and Ann and said, come get him. Right, that's exactly what would have happened. (laughs) I'd have actually been scared for him. No, um, I'm going to pay for that one later too. Mercy is this idea that we don't always get what we deserve. And so this is the reality for us. What does it look like if you and I choose to be people who give mercy? Well, probably it begins with us recognizing that we've received mercy if we've come to know who God is. See, this is who Jesus is. He comes into our lives and he says, hey, I want you to know who my father is. And my father is full of mercy and this is who God is. That God is full of mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, he probably gives us the exact opposite. And so what Jesus does is he helps us reorient our lives to a new perspective in which mercy becomes a vital part of what we have received and what we are called to give. And so this morning we're going to read a text that at first glance may not seem like it deals with mercy, but if you bear with me, I hope it will. So I invite you to stand as we read from Luke chapter 17, um, verse 20 to 37. I invite you to stand today because I know some of you struggle with this whole fall forward thing, like you just stay up later and are tired. Um, So this is an opportunity to stretch if you need it, and that way you don't sleep for at least two more minutes. So Luke 17, verse 20 says this, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked. He replied, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I know that's really hopeful. what ends with the idea that where there are vultures are going to gather dead bodies, right? This sounds really hopeful today, but I, I think it actually really is hopeful for us today. But it begins with this verse at the beginning in verse 22, um, I'm sorry, verse 21. What most of our translations say is, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. Um, but a better translation, in fact, what most scholars, in fact, the new NIV one, who they've rewritten this differently. It says this, the kingdom of God is in your midst. I mean, this is what Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees. Hey, listen, the kingdom of God, it's actually present here and now. It's what Luke writes all throughout. Luke records his, his understanding of who Jesus is, and he records what's going on here. And what we see over and over again in Luke is he makes these kind of statements. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. He says it's like a present reality, uh, kind of generally. And then he also says it's like this specific thing, it's a specific place at certain times. And then he says, like, the kingdom of God is to come. Well, kind of confusing. So it's here and it's kind of here and it's not here? Yes. Oh, okay. I'm with you now, right? I mean, that's kind of what I think too. But what he's trying to say is it's this kind of idea of already but not yet. When Jesus came into the world, he brought in this idea that heaven, heaven came in, in Jesus. So Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You can substitute them both in. It works either way. What... Luke is trying to get across here is this That that heaven comes to earth That it's in your midst That it should be here in your everyday lives That you should see it in a reflection in how you live It's this idea of the already But not yet That it's kind of already here But it's not yet fully here Jesus has come but he hasn't returned And when he returns he'll make all the wrongs right But until then we still see the broken remnants Of what's around us And so so the Pharisees hear this and they're like, what, what's he talking about? Because their understanding was a little different. See, what most of us kind of missed is, is this chapter, chapter 17, is actually echoing what we looked at before, but actually is next in the text in chapter 21, this idea of Jesus' foreshadowing. or are telling them what's coming and what happened in AD 70, the year 70. And in that year, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The city was ransacked. So he talks about this person will be in bed and one ripped out. That's literally what happened. People were killed. It was awful. It was a horrific scene. He used kind of cataclysmic language to help point us in that direction to see that picture. The problem for those who hear this, the Pharisees in particular, is they had bought into this idea that national identity, that political system and structure and nation was their hope. But what they didn't seem to understand is that God's kingdom transcends national boundaries. I mean, see, they understood everything going to come like Rome, right? It's going to be armies and tanks and missiles and bombs and guns, right? But, okay, maybe in that day it would have been chariots and horses and bows and arrows or whatever else, right? But, but it's the same idea. This is how kingdoms come and so they expected God's kingdom to come this way and Jesus is like, hmm, not really how this is going to work. In fact, it's going to come a ways total opposite of what you think. I mean, they expected a, a general to come and lead an army, what they got was a carpenter who died on a cross. Quite a different story. In fact, there's one one scholar put it this way. He said, This, for Luke, all expectations of the kingdom of God must be grounded in the message of Moses and the prophets. Those expectations include compassion for the outcasts. They do not include a corresponding religious, national, or ethnic superiority. Call the response of the messengers of John the Baptist. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. All of this has occurred and is occurring in the present kingdom of God. For in Luke's Jesus, it's a mistake to think of the kingdom of God as a political reality. So then what does that mean for us? It means people who are part of God's kingdom are marked by one thing, and that's Repentance. So the idea that we turn from one way of life and we turn to another way of life. That we have turned from who we have been and we've turned to who God calls us to be. That it reorients or reshapes our purpose in life. In fact, what he's trying to say is this. You've bought in the idea that, that, that your birthright, your nation, that that matters in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going, no, it doesn't. It might help you understand more fully. In fact, you should know better. He's trying to say this, that just because you're born into a family that believes in Jesus doesn't mean you're in. You've got you to gotta believe at some point yourself. Just because you are part of a certain political party doesn't mean you're right and you're in. None of those things get us into God's kingdom. In fact, they, they don't get us much of anything if we're honest. But what he says to us is this, if you turn from who you've been, if you turn to a new way of life, then you'll begin to know what it looks like. And so Jesus tells these kind of cataclysmic, these, the flood, the, this idea of lightning, he's, he's trying to say this, that when I die, it is like one of these events that changes the very course of history. In fact, we could argue easily, any historian would tell you that Jesus' life and death, and we believe in a resurrection, it literally has changed the course of history. We count time by his life. There's no question if you go back through history, I mean, think of all the things that have happened because of Jesus. Hospitals were started. Schools were started. I mean, we, we, we recognize that God calls us to heal people wholly. I mean, it's the, it's the call of God on our lives. It's the call of the church. And it stems from this one person who we believe not only lived and died, but he came back to life because that's who Jesus is. And so then we're left kind of with this question, what So if predominantly this text is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., does it have any meaning for us today, or is it just for that? How about yes? It does have some for us. It says, we may long for God's justice, for God to make all things right, and it may happen more slowly than we'd like. We're called to endure with patience. In fact, we're called to live daily doing life as if he's not going to come for another couple thousand years. Or as if he might show up tomorrow. Call to live as a faithful people in the midst of whatever is going on in the world in which we live. so the question you are not left with is, what does this mean for now? Like, what what do we do? What do we do with this? What does it matter? I mean, it, well, maybe this would be helpful. Um, we're called to be a people of mercy. We're called to do things for people, whether they deserve them or not, especially if they can't repay us. Right? One of my stories I think about when I was um, first year out of school. I went back to watch the graduation at Olivet, where I went to school, and. And the um, pastor I worked for, Jack, he was one of the trustees for the university. And so, so trustees are usually like CEOs of companies and attorneys and, and doctors, and they're kind of usually pretty successful people. And then they have to have a couple pastors thrown in because it's Christian college. So Jack was one of those pastors thrown in. And so Jack is there with all these people who are pretty successful in life. And, and I remember looking, as I'm watching, all the people kind of crowded together, and he's over talking to a lady named Susie. And Susie... Um, is meek and mild and quiet. And to this day, she'd be embarrassed if she knew I was talking about her in church, right? I mean, she just is that kind of person. Susie cleaned the science building on campus there, but she attended the church that Jack was the pastor. And so he had opportunity that he could, he could go and talk with people like many of us do, that maybe they could help us raise our station in life. Maybe they could help us be more successful. Instead of going there, he went to the person who could do literally nothing for him, nothing, And that's who he spent time with. And this is a reminder for us that we're called to invest in people who probably are going to give us nothing in return for our own benefit. Because this is what Jesus calls us to. This is what it means to receive his mercy and grace and to live as a people of faith who bring heaven, God's kingdom, into the here and now. But the key of all this text, this entire thing that we read today, is verse 33, which says this. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. If I were to say that differently, if I'm concerned with my, quote, rights, end quote, more than my neighbor or my enemy, maybe I'm still trying to save my life and not lose it for the sake of the other. Or to say it another way, mercy is not found in self-preservation. Mercy is found in giving to others. I mean, why would I want to be a person of mercy? Why does that sound like fun? Why would I do that? What if I just said it was as simple as this, that we're creating the image of God and God calls us to be his reflection in the world and God is a God of mercy. You see, I don't know if God's got a mercy. I mean, I don't know that God, that's who he is. But what if I did tell you that I I think Jesus, one of his primary purposes was to point to us who God is, who he calls Father, what he actually was like instead of what we think God is like. And when we have a clearer understanding of who God actually is, it impacts the way we live in pretty significant ways. And so what Jesus begins to do is say this, my father wants to be in right relationship with you. And you're like, well, I don't think I'm in bad relationship with God. And God would say to us this. Well, how you treat others, how you see others, is a reflection of your relationship with me. Oh. See, so when I see them as a sexual object, to objectify, yeah, ooh. So when I see how they can help me move up the corporate ladder in some way, shape, or form, or how they can help me and my family, and I see them as that, how I see them as an ends, not just the means themselves. So when I see them as, yeah, all that stuff. So when I don't reconcile with a person who's ticked me off, yeah, that would be part of that too. So when I don't forgive, yes. So when I'm not gracious, yes, all those things are a reflection of our relationship with God. Oh. But the good news for us is that Jesus tells us who God is. He uses all kinds of word pictures for us to describe who he calls father. There's this one, he he says, my father is like this dad who has a son who says, I wish you were dead and you just gave me all your stuff. If you die and I have my inheritance now and he runs off and he squanders his wealth, it's the father who runs to him anyway. In that same story, it's the brother who says, how come... How come I've been around here? I've been ungrateful the whole time, but how come I've been around here and you do nothing for me? And the father says, I love you. Don't you know all I have is already yours? It's a story of the landowner who goes out and hires workers and he hires them some early in the morning and he hires more mid-morning and he hires more at lunch and he hires more in the afternoon. and Then he hires a bunch of them right before he's done for the day and he pays them all the same. I don't know that I like that story, but that's okay. But, but at the end of that story, the, the people got hired in the morning like, I worked all day, I worked a 12-hour shift, and that person worked an hour, and we got paid the same? And he looks at him and he says, well, didn't I promise you what I would give you, and didn't I give it to you? Said, well, yeah. It's my money, right? I can give it however I want. I promised him the same thing. See, mercy isn't promising fairness. We've bought into fairness too often. Fair is not a reality. God's grace is not fair. Mercy is not fair. Because some of us have sinned greater than others, but God's mercy and God's grace is equal to us all. And he comes to us and he says, don't you know who my father is? Here, let me tell you who my father is. My father says, I so desperately don't want you to get what you deserve. I, his son, will lay down my life so that you don't have to lay down yours. Do you want to know who my father is? He loves with the fullness of love that says, I'll let my own son go to the cross so that you can know my love. So you know how far I'll go to you, I'll run. There is no shame that I will not embrace. This is who I am. I'm a God of mercy and graciousness. So what does it look like in our lives? It looks like that spouse who sticks it out even though the other spouse doesn't deserve it. And they fight for a marriage Anyway. It looks like that employer who offers grace to employee who he should probably fire. looks like that friend who maintains her friendship with someone else even though they don't deserve it. It looks like that neighbor who we really don't like because their dog poops in our yard all the time and they're not very nice. It looks like us being gracious and merciful to them even though they don't deserve it. Like, mercy is undeserved, but it's given anyway. In fact, I want to read a story of mercy that I've shared before. In fact, I I will probably share it 50 more times because I think it's that good. So um, if you don't like it too bad, you'll get over it because you'll hear it again. The scene is a courtroom trial in South Africa. A frail black woman stands slowly to her feet. She's more than 70 years old. Facing her from across the room are several white security police officers. One of them, Mr. Vanderbrick has just been tried and found guilty in the murders of first the woman's son and then her husband. He had come to the woman's home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank, and then burned the young man's body while he and his officers partied nearby. Several years later, Mr. Vanderbrick and his cohorts returned to take away her husband as well. For months, she heard nothing of his whereabouts. Then, almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Mr. Vanderbrick came back to fetch her. How vividly she remembered that night. She was taken to a riverbank where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as Mr. Vanderbrick and his fellow officers poured gasoline over his body and set him aflame were Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions of Mr. Vanderbrick. A member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman calmly, but confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses then continues. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbrick to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. Finally, she says, I would like Mr. Vanderbrick to know I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. So I'd kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so I can take Mr. Vanderbrick in my arms, embrace him, and let him know he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants come to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbrick faints, overwhelmed by what he has just heard. As he struggles for consciousness, those in the courtroom, family, friends, and neighbors, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice begin to sing softly but assuredly, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. First, time I read that story, I think of how powerful that image is. In fact, every time I read that story, I pray the same prayer. Father, help me to live that same way. I mean, God forbid any of us experience something like that for our own families, but if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, my prayer is that my response would be her response. God's mercy to me is undeserved by me. I mean, if my reflection of my love for him is a reflection of how I treat others, there are times I have not treated them that well. It's only by God's grace and mercy that he invites us into places of knowing him. See, the truth is for us that um, mercy for others only comes when we love people. Like a true, sacrificial, selfless, other kind of love. And that love only comes when we know Jesus who models for us what this love looks like and lives this love out and then calls us to do the same. And it's defined and marked by mercy. In fact, it's marked by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven breaking into the here and now. It's us living to this already, but not yet. The idea that we bring heaven to earth every single day. We bring heaven by our generosity. We bring heaven by living as a people of humility. In fact, we bring heaven by what we did last Sunday, what we try to do every fifth Sunday. We try to, to serve some way in our community. So, so by our packing little meals for kids food basket, we, we've got to figure out a way to... We did You guys did too well last week. We packed 1,000 in like 20 minutes. That was not the plan. You were too quick. So uh, we'll have to figure out a better solution for the future. Um, maybe more money to spend on the front end. That would probably do it. Um, it's a way in which we can show generosity some of us went and worked on an apartment building where, where this week, one of, the, uh, one of the U.S. veterans had to be in by, by Wednesday. And so the apartment had to get done. And so, so, some people, not me, thankfully, put in a floor. Thank you, Jason. Put in a floor and Craig Clawson did some plumbing. I'm glad it was Craig doing the plumbing and not me. you right, I mean, some people from church worked hard to get this place ready for these people to come in. I painted some trim. It's about where my skills lie but it's a way for us to model mercy to others. It's compassion, not because they have to have it, but because we choose to willingly give it. In fact, it's why um, today we'll take communion in just a few moments. It's an opportunity for us to to come to a table and recognize God's mercy and God's compassion come to us, not because of what we have done, but because of who God is. That's what Jesus tells us over and over again who his father is. It's also an opportunity this morning, we're going to do something new every time we take communion. So once a month, at the back doors as you leave, we're going to take a special offering for benevolence. And what benevolence is, is kindness. That's literally what it means, kindness. So it's an offering of kindness. And that money will be used to go to help families in need, period. It will not pay for a light bill in here, it will not pay one salaries, it will not, you know, replace um, light bulbs, it will not fix carpet, it will do nothing of that, it will only go to help people in need. In fact, there's already a family i, I I've talked with this week who will probably need help. Um, So we will do that every month because it's a response to God's mercy and grace to us. It's a reminder that we save our life by giving it. It's a reminder we find true life, hope, something worth living for. In fact, something worth dying for when we come to know who God is, and we're able to bring heaven to earth in everyday life. So this morning. I want to remind us that we find God's hope not when we seek self-preservation, our own rights, but we find hope when we give to others in sacrificial, selfless ways. And so this morning, uh, some are going to come and help with communion at this time. Um, and as they come to help with communion today, we're going we're to pray and, and then we're going to sing, call it grace, um, one more time. And so as we take communion this morning, the way communion works for us, is if you're a guest with us today, that we invite anyone to take communion. All we ask is that by taking communion, what you're responding to is this, that Jesus is Lord of your life. And so our table is open, and so you're going to come this morning, and you're going to take a piece of bread, and, and someone's going to say to you, the body of Christ, and then you're going to dip it in a cup, and someone's going to say to you, the blood of Christ, and then you're going to take and eat, and it's a reminder of God's grace and mercy that comes to us, that is free gift, not fair and not earned, but it's because of who God is, and then he calls us to be his reflection, to give mercy in everyday lives for us. Father, we help us this morning as we, as we pray to leave this place and go about our everyday activities and everyday lives, that we would be a people of grace and mercy. That we'd recognize you come to us and you give us grace in such a way that you say to us that you are to be givers of grace. And so may we respond to your grace and mercy today through our taking of communion our giving of an offering of benevolence, of kindness to others, to help those in need, to be a people who live out acts of compassion. So Father, we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you at this time to stand from where you are and head out the middle outside aisles and to come forward and follow the row in front of you and then head back a different way than you came. And then join us as we pray.